and listen to it. I pray that as we uh, consider the truth from First Timothy this morning, that your spirit would be at work in just applying some of these things we've already considered in a greater way uh, to our hearts and lives. Please, Lord, we need you this morning. Uh, we are dependent on your grace, uh, apart from which we can't do anything. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, if you could turn to First Timothy this morning and maybe just kind of follow along as we work through the questions, that'd be, I think, a nice little benefit for us. We'll begin with sort of an introduction to Timothy. First uh, Timothy is the first of three books that we have given the designation of the pastoral epistles. Uh, the other two books being, maybe you can guess, 2 Timothy and Titus. And these three books have been called the pastoral epistles because Paul is writing to a couple of young pastors who are in the process of uh, beginning their own ministries. And he is writing them as an older man to these younger men, maybe a set of instructions or commands or advice that he has for these guys as they begin their ministry. So these uh, Letters are kind of unique in that they're not addressed to churches like most of Paul's letters are. They're actually addressed to people. Uh, maybe you remember from uh, the Wednesday night services, if you've been coming, Titus was a pastor on the island of, does anyone remember? Crete. Yes, and Timothy, we find out here in First Timothy, he is a pastor at the church in Ephesus, which Paul started. And here Paul is, as an older man, now passing off a church that he started to Timothy. There's uh, additional significance to these books uh, because it is likely that the pastoral epistles are some of the last books that the Apostle Paul wrote. And I think that'll be very evident to you as you study 2 Timothy this week in your reading. There is language in 2 Timothy that just leaps off the page to you and says, Paul knows that his days are coming to an end. Let me encourage you to keep an eye out for that and just to think about the significance of some of the final things that he has to say to Timothy this week. So these books are unique in the sense that these are kind of like Paul's last words. And here Paul is, an older man. You know, he is a fierce defender of the faith. He has spent a large chunk of his life defending the gospel, proclaiming it to the known world. And here he is now passing the baton, if you will, to two younger guys and saying, hey, here's what I learned. You guys are pastors now. Here's some advice for you. Here's how to shepherd the flock well. And as I'm sure you can imagine, given these circumstances, uh, these letters are pretty tender. Uh, these aren't like Paul rattling off a set of bulleted instructions to a couple of interns. Paul has great love for these two guys, and especially Timothy. You can see Paul's concern for him. Throughout the epistles, uh, Paul calls Timothy his child. Uh, a couple of times, he says, Timothy, you're my beloved child. And even though there's no like blood relationship there, you can tell that these two men have a very special relationship. And you can actually kind of trace uh, Timothy's spiritual maturity, if you will, through the epistles. He starts off uh, meeting Paul in the book of Acts on his second missionary journey. Or Paul just kind of invites him to, hey, travel with me, Timothy, if you'd like. And Timothy does. And then we read through the epistles and Timothy becomes a messenger of sorts. He's someone who goes to different cities on behalf of Paul and checks in on people and brings reports back to Paul. And by the time we get to 1 Timothy, as I've said already, he's a pastor. 
He's pastoring the church in Ephesus, and we kind of get to watch Timothy grow up, if you will. Paul epitomizes what we've learned about on Wednesday nights of what it is for an older man to train younger men. He's really taken Timothy under his wing here and, and trying to just invest in him. And, and maybe in your own life, you can think of someone who has become maybe a mentor to you. Someone maybe in your walk with the Lord or in the workplace that has made an intentional effort to mentor you, to train you, to disciple you, to help you grow in your walk with the Lord. That's what Paul was to Timothy. Can I encourage you this morning, before we even look at a verse, to just consider if we can model this in our own lives, right? The instruction that is given in Titus for older men and older women to train younger men and women is not a suggestion This is a command. And we can see the fruit of Paul's labors, of pouring his life into Timothy, as now at the end of life, here Timothy is a young pastor. It's pretty awesome, and let me encourage you to consider how you could do the same. Even if you don't think you're very old, there is still certainly someone younger than you that you can begin to just put your arm around and say, hey, here's what God's been teaching me. Here's what I've been learning as I read through the word. Let me pass some of this off to you. With that, we'll come to our first set of questions this morning from 1 Timothy 1. Chapter 1 kind of opens with Paul explaining the task that Timothy has ahead of him as pastor of this church. And it certainly seems like this is no small task. Timothy has a lot ahead of him. There are a lot of instructions that Paul is going to give him, maybe a little overwhelming, like he's been kicked into the deep end. And here you go. It's go time. This is where the rubber meets the road. You are now a pastor. Here's some instructions for you, Timothy. And I think we're introduced to some of the difficulties of this right out of the gate, because Paul says there are some false teachers that need to be confronted. Uh, These false teachers are uh, wrongly integrating the law in, in the gospel together. This is not a new concept to us. As we read through the epistles, it seems like almost every uh, letter Paul writes is confronting someone who is misusing the Jewish law. There's always these Jewish people who are trying to add to the gospel. And Paul says, these people, even in Ephesus, need to be confronted. And I know this wasn't one of the questions on the screen here, but I wanted to ask you guys, maybe as we've had several opportunities at something like this, if you could articulate to me what the appropriate relationship of the law is to the gospel. Now that Jesus has come, what purpose does the law serve? Anyone want to take a crack at that? Shane. Yes, that is one of the purposes of the law. It actually shows people why they need a savior, because of their inability to keep it. Yeah, Uh, I think another purpose of the law, maybe in an even more general sense, is that it is a standard by which God promotes good behavior and condemns wrong behavior, but that's about the extent of the law. Obviously, it falls short in one critical area, and that is its inability to save people. And so the Jewish people that were saying that the law and the gospel need to coexist, yes, Jesus has a part of it, but do these works, Paul says, no way. The gospel is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And as Paul reflects 
on this great responsibility that he has to be a steward of the gospel. He's been selected by God to proclaim the true faith. He begins to reflect on his own conversion, and that's where our first question comes into play. As Paul thinks about his conversion, how does he describe his life before Christ? Brenda. Yeah, Paul describes himself as a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. We just read the book of Acts not too long ago, and we know that when Paul says these things about himself, this is not hyperbole. He's not exaggerating here. This is the guy who gave approval to the death of Stephen. This is the guy who was going around house to house in Jerusalem, hauling Christians out of their homes, sending them to prison. People start fleeing the area. We would do the exact same if someone was coming door to door. You never know when the knock on your door is going to be Saul hauling you off to prison. But Paul isn't content to just do this in Jerusalem. We find out that he has plans to go to Damascus, a hundred miles away, to start persecuting Christians there. Paul says in Galatians that his purpose was that he persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. That's what Paul was trying to do. And you kind of wonder, as you think about Paul's life before conversion, how many people did this guy send to prison? How many people died in prison as a result of Paul's persecution against them? How many families were separated? How many Pharisees were emboldened by Paul's actions to do the same? And this brings us to Paul's final evaluation of himself in verse 15. What does he conclude about himself, Claire? Yeah, the ESV says that he is the foremost of sinners. I believe it's the King James that says he's the chief of sinners. The NIV says he's the worst of sinners. There's a less literal translation that says that Paul was public sinner number one. This is Paul's evaluation of himself. And one commentator I read noted Paul's humility here. He doesn't try and sweep his life before Christ under the rug. A lot of times we'll hear people say, well, I'm really not that bad of a person. Paul doesn't do that. He says, here it is. I am the worst, chief, foremost of sinners. But that's not the end of the story because we're reminded of a simple truth about Jesus in verse 15. What are we told about Jesus here? Tell me. Yeah, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And on that awesome day, on the road to Damascus, Paul encountered Christ. And in an instant, his life was changed. And he gets to Damascus, and rather than persecuting Christians, he's teaching that Jesus is the Christ. And people are like shocked, like, wasn't this the guy that was coming here to condemn this false religion? And now he's proclaiming it? And when you hear these words, if you're a believer this morning, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, something in you says, Amen. Because we know our own sinfulness. 
We know what our sins deserve, and yet the innocent was condemned in our place. The price has already been paid. And here's a reality for us to consider this morning. There is no shame as a believer in admitting that you are sinful. In fact, that is a requirement to coming to Christ. John, 1 John says that if you say you have not sinned, the truth isn't in you. You're a liar. Part of coming to Jesus is saying, I know how much I've sinned. There is no other way for me to come to God but through Jesus Christ. I need a Savior. We don't revel in our sins, no. But we're honest and upfront, and we say, hey, I'm a wicked person. I'm desperately in need of deliverance. That's what makes Jesus so awesome, that he is a savior of sinners. And why in verse 16, our final question here, why does Paul say that he received mercy? Jeff. Yeah, I'll I'll read that verse again. So that Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So let me ask you this. You're sharing the gospel with someone and they say these words to you. You don't know what I've done. My sins have piled so high, Jesus can't save me. According to Paul in verse 16, what do you say? What might be a, a response to that court kind of reasoning? Craig. I'm as bad, if not worse than you are. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, hey, look at the Apostle Paul. Calls himself the foremost, the chief, the worst of sinners, and Jesus forgave him. Totally, he can save you. And Paul is not an isolated instance in the scriptures. The scriptures are full of people who are bad dudes. Abraham lying about his relationship to his wife. Moses, a murderer. David, adulterer and murderer. Peter, denier of Jesus Christ himself. And yet, Jesus forgives. It's like the song says, our sins are many, but his mercy is more. So we come to the application section from chapter one here. And I realize this is a little bit personal, but if anyone would be willing to just answer this first question, I think it could be helpful for us this morning. What are some words that you might use to describe your own life prior to Christ? And I realize that some of us were saved pretty young, so we don't entirely know. But if you were saved at a young age, how would you describe the sinfulness that is still present in your own heart? Does anyone just want to volunteer maybe some words they wrote down to describe their sinfulness? Brenda. Just being uh, uh, not self-controlled, not putting God first, um, not living for Him. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah, John. <laughs> I got a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, selfish, proud, ignorant of the true living God, blasphemer of God, arrogant, seeking riches, and I put thank you God for saving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Shane. So you had your hand. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I had a handful. I wrote. Um, Wicked, self-centered, corrupt, polluted. Unfortunately, even now, I still know all too well the, we- the evil that exists inside of me. The flesh is strong in a lot of us. 
And yet, what has Jesus done with those sins? Yeah, John. As far as the east is from the west. As far as the east is from the west, they've been nailed to the cross, that record of death that stood against us. And Paul, just meditating on these truths, just bursts out in song in a praise to God there in verse 17. He says this, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And I challenge you guys, as you think about your own conversion and the reality that Jesus has taken your sins, those terrible words that described you on the first bullet point there, and forgiven them, I hope that your heart was just encouraged to break out in song yourselves. I want to ask you to share that, but hopefully you all wrote down a sentence or two just of praise for what God has done for you. We come now to chapter 2, and this is where Paul really gets into the meat of his instructions to Timothy. Chapter 1 was kind of an introduction. All right, Timothy, buckle up. Here are some instructions for you as a pastor. Where do you start? Paul begins with prayer. And this teaching is pretty comprehensive. Not only does he talk about the posture of prayer, uh, but he also just talks about, hey, here are some things you should be praying for in church. So according to verse 1, who is Paul instructing us to pray for? Yeah, I heard someone whisper it. All people. Yeah, I don't want us to gloss over that fact either. Paul doesn't say that we should only pray for other believers or friends and family, or people that we like, that we have, you know, good relationships. Paul says, pray for all people, regardless of whether or not you like them. Pray for them. This is a command that Jesus gave first when he said, pray for those who persecute you. Chapter 2, excuse me, verse 2, kind of elaborates on some of the people that we should be praying for. You can see Uh, Chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, Pray for kings and all who are in these high positions. And what would be an outcome of praying for those who are in leadership positions? According to Paul, what results from these types of prayers? Yeah, Andy. We would have tranquility and we could have peace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Praying for these people in leadership positions actually results in having a peaceful and quiet life so that we can live godly and dignified in every way. Now, we don't exactly know how that happens. There's a handful of suggestions. Some people have speculated that maybe as you pray for leaders in government, your heart actually becomes a little bit more submissive to them and you find, whoa, I can live peaceably under their rule when I pray for them. Perhaps God in his grace allows leaders when you pray for them to make decisions that accord with biblical values. But I think There's even a perhaps broader component to all of this that's going on here, an evangelistic one. We read in verse 3 that these types of prayers are good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. And what do we learn about the heart of God in verse 4? We're told something really interesting about God's heart. Uh, He desires that all people be saved. Yes. God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter chapter 3 makes a very similar statement. Let me read it for you. We're told about God this, that God is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. How's that for a description of God? 
not willing that any should perish, desiring that all should be saved. And yet, even as I say those things, maybe there's a question that's being raised in your mind. You might hear people say something like this in objection to these statements here. Well, if God really desires all people to be saved, then why aren't they? If God is not willing or wishing, I think the ESV says, that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, then why are people still perishing and being condemned every single day? If this is the heart of God, why is the opposite still happening? To someone who raises that question, I would just say this. Frankly, I don't think you're understanding the big picture here. Because the reality is, is that all of us deserve to be condemned. No one should be receiving eternal life. God is loving and gracious and merciful. We do know that God desires all people to be saved because of one big reason. The gap that has been uh, spanned between us and God has been spanned by one person. Who is that? Who is that mediator between God and man? Jesus Christ, the man, Christ Jesus, Paul says. So here's the thing. There is only one way to escape God's wrath. It's not good works. It's not any other person. God, in demonstrating that he desires all people to be saved, said, let me show you. Here's Jesus. I'm going to make provision for everyone to be saved. And Jesus isn't just good for a handful of people, a select group. Who did Jesus give his life as a ransom for? All people. First John says he's the propitiation for our sins, not ours only, but the sins of the whole world. John 3.16, we know this well, God loved the world. So we are affirming even this morning that it is true that God does not want anyone to perish. It, it, it is true that God desires all men to be saved, and that is evidenced most clearly for us at the cross. And God's saying, whoever will repent and come to Jesus in faith will be forgiven. And so the reason that people are still perishing today and being condemned is not because of some lack on God's part, but because of a rebellion of sinful humanity and saying, I'm still going to choose my own way. I will willingly reject the one who has made a way of salvation for me. As we think about the application section of 1 Timothy chapter 2, I wanted to get really practical here and just ask you this. Who and or what are some of the specific people and requests that you should be praying for in light of this text of Scripture? Feel free to give me some specific names here according to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Who should we be praying for? What should we be praying for them? Brenda. Besides family and friends, uh, all those who God puts in their life, uh, with people, uh, just all those people that are just placed in your life, um, you want to pray that they are in our hands. Yeah, all people in our life. Uh, I appreciate you in kind of encapsulating the word all in there because God does say to pray for all people. Yeah, I saw, John, your hand was raised there briefly. Yeah. President Biden, you should be praying, praying for Chuck Schumer. You should be praying for 
I, we should be praying for the Lowell City Council. We yeah. should be praying for the Drake Selectmen. We should be praying for our local government. That God would do the work in us to see how we can use them. Exactly. Yeah. Pray for some of our government officials by name, be it our president or vice president or local officials or police or whomever. Pray for these people. And what kind of requests should we be praying for them? I know sometimes even the mention of some of these people's names causes our blood to boil a little bit. We're like, Arr. but according to this passage of scripture, what are we praying for them? Yeah, Hutch. They would come to the knowledge of the truth. Yeah. They would be saved. Think about these people. Do you want them to be condemned in hell for eternity? If you have trouble answering that, think about what you deserve. And pray that some of these people would come to Christ. Yeah, any other requests? Shane. Even your enemies. Yeah. Pray for your enemies. Yeah, as far as specific requests go, I was thinking, we saw there in verse 2 that one of the outcomes of praying for these people is that an environment is created in which we can live these godly, dignified lives. Pray that our leaders would make decisions that are God-honoring. That would create a culture here in the States where we can worship and serve and continue to live out Christian lives that are unhindered in some ways. How about this one? If you notice in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, there are all these synonyms for prayer. We see supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings. Let me encourage you to be thankful for all people, right? When is the last time that you had a prayer of thanksgiving for someone you didn't like all that much? And yet, according to this passage of scripture, thanksgivings need to be made for all people, so find something good in someone else to thank God for and say, Lord, thank you for so-and-so and for this decision they made, for the way that they reflect your character and your glory. We see the image of God in these people. Lord, would you save them? How awesome would that be if we took this command seriously and instead of, you know, thinking about how much we dislike these people and just letting you know, social media and other places just fuel this dislike for them. If we took the text of scripture at face value, let this be our authority and said, you know what? I'm going to pray for him. I'm going to be thankful for these people that God has appointed to these positions. Yeah. All right. We come now to chapter three. And after talking about prayer, now Paul has instructions for Timothy regarding the leadership of the church. And there's a lot of instructions uh, in this chapter for elders and deacons, particularly. So the questions are kind of geared around these two offices anyway. So according to verse 5, why must an overseer or elder know how to manage his own household? What reason is given for that? Hutch. If he can't manage his own household, how's he going to manage the book on the church of God? <laughs> You want greater responsibility of managing the church of God? Show me first that you can manage your household. Totally. Uh, why must he not be a recent convert? What danger is there if an elder is a recent convert? Yeah. Just pride and falling into condemnation because of that pride. Yes. There is a propensity for pridefulness if you are a recent, a recent convert. And then verse 7, why must he be well thought of by outsiders? Uh, sit here. 
so he will not uh, be disgraced and fall into um, the devil's trap. So that he will not fall into disgrace. Some commentators think that perhaps if a, this is talking about an elder who in the world lives a very worldly secular lifestyle and then comes to church on Sunday and proclaims a totally different uh, message and outsiders are like, you're living a double life. You're not even practicing what you believe. You, you, you tell people on Sundays to do this, but we see you in the world. We know what you're really like. Yeah, so who then is trying to ensnare an overseer? Satan, yeah. I mean, wouldn't Satan love nothing more than to take one of these guys out and to dismantle a church if possible? Yeah, what has to be proven then as we transition to requirements of a deacon? What has to be proven of them? In a word, they must be blameless. Yeah, and Paul actually encourages Timothy, hey, why don't you have like a period of testing before you even appoint them as deacons, to see if this really is true of them. Now, now I'm wondering if you read this chapter on Wednesday and you kind of like breathed a sigh of relief, like, whew, I'm not either of these offices, elder or deacon, thus this whole chapter does not apply to me. There are some very serious qualifications here that make me sweat a little bit, that are kind of intimidating, and you're like, glad that's not me though. Well, let me encourage you to look at verses 14 and 15. As we think about the apply section, is it only the leaders of the church who have requirements for their behavior? What do you think? Uh, sorry. <laughs> Lisa. Yeah, we all do. Let's just look at verses 14 and 15 again. Paul says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. It certainly seems that Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, not just so that Timothy can have some specific instructions, but maybe so that everybody will know how to conduct themselves in the household of God. In fact, this is true as the book goes on. In chapter 2, we have requirements for how women should be adorning themselves, for how men should be praying. In chapter 6, there are expectations for those who are rich. This is fascinating. In chapter 5, Paul actually says of the widows that the widows must be above reproach. We're not used to hearing that kind of language outside of the role of an elder or deacon. And Paul says, widows, you guys have to be above reproach here. There are expectations for everybody, and in a word, 1 Timothy 4, verse 7, I think encapsulates this. What should we be training for? You can just call it out. Godliness. Godliness, yes. Why? How is this whole church described in verse 15? Why should we all be striving for godliness? There is something that is true of all of us together. What is that? Cynthia. Yeah, we're the pillar and support or buttress of the truth. These are architectural terms, so maybe they're not all that familiar to us, but the idea that it's communicating is that our lives collectively as the church of God support or hold up the truth of the gospel. That all of us together as the household of God are hopefully validating the words that we say. Because it is one thing to just talk about the gospel, to tell people the change that Jesus has worked in our lives and we believe all these doctrines, that's nice. But what about your lives? Do they evidence that? 
Is our life a pedestal for the gospel that says, hey, I have been born again. I have new desires. I have changed my life because of what the gospel has done in my heart. Unfortunately, I think the opposite could be true. That while we're supposed to be supporting the truth, our lives can actually work against it at times. And there may be people that we interact with who would be shocked to know that we're Christians. Because we look just like they do. They see us 9 to 5, Monday to Friday, and there's nothing different about our lives. We've not upheld or supported anything. Can I encourage you this morning to really consider if your life is giving credibility to the gospel that you would proclaim with your mouth? Are you supporting the gospel through your actions? These are sobering thoughts, but I think necessary ones for us to consider. Chapter 4, obviously all of Timothy is addressed to Timothy, but chapter 4 kind of seems unique in that Paul actually just speaks to Timothy very privately, gives him some very personal instructions. It's almost like we're just a fly on a wall looking at some private conversation that Paul is having with him. Just an awesome passage of scripture, chapter 4 is. Particularly if you're someone who's going into ministry or a young person like Timothy was, according to verse 7, what does Paul instruct Timothy to have nothing to do with? Will. Yeah, he says, hey, have nothing to do with these irrelevant, silly myths. Interestingly, this is the second time Paul has actually mentioned these things. He says it back in chapter 1 as a description of these false teachers. These false teachers are engaging in these uh, myths and conversations about genealogies. And the problem with these things is Paul says that these conversations about myths are really resulting in vain discussion It's promoting a lot of speculation, and Paul is telling Timothy, don't go down that road. I think Paul knows the propensity that young people have to talk about things that don't matter all that much. If I can think back on my college days, there were groups of guys that I was with who would just spend time talking about stuff that I look back on, and I'm like, sure, we brought in biblical principles to these discussions, but I think the really point of what we were doing was just to argue. Someone taking a side and playing devil's advocate, if you will, and just running our mouths about stuff that doesn't matter. I think a classic historical example of this is all of the time that has been spent trying to answer the question, um, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen? Right? What value does that have for the Christian life? Paul tells Timothy, stay away from these discussions that have no bearing on anything of importance. Timothy, focus on this instead. What is that? Godliness. Yeah, and and this is interesting because, you know, we, we, we gather that Timothy is a younger man, and Paul actually talks about bodily training, working out, going to the gym. Maybe Timothy was watching his diet and hitting the gym a couple of days a week. Paul says, hey, bodily training has some value, But godliness has value in every way, in this life and in the next. 
So Timothy, pursue godliness. Don't talk about things that aren't making you more like Christ, that aren't strengthening your faith. Have a single focus, a mission in pursuing godliness. And I think one of the immediate ramifications of Timothy doing this is revealed to us later on down in that verse 12 area because Paul tells Timothy, hey, don't let people despise you for your youth. There are a lot of people who look at younger people and think, well, we know teens and people in their 20s are immature. We know they make foolish decisions. So we're already going to approach you, Timothy, with that perspective, that you must be this person. Paul says, don't let people despise you just because you're young. Be an example of the believers in five key ways. Can anyone just read those off from verse 12? How should Timothy be an example? In what arenas? Temi. Speech, love, conduct, faith, and purity. Yeah, speech, love, conduct, faith, purity. Paul says, Timothy, don't play into that stereotype that often fall on young people. Be an example here. Demonstrate by your life that you are a godly person. I'm reminded that a lot of what you say as a pastor is strengthened or hurt by how you live. And a lot of times people look at your life before they'll listen to you. This is a familiar concept to a lot of us. People give us advice all the time and we think, well, you know, you spend your weekends in Vegas. I probably don't want to take budgeting advice from you. Similarly, Timothy, Make sure your life is matching up with what you're preaching. Be an example among the believers. And if I could just pause here and address, I'll let you determine if you're a young person or not. But young people, consider Paul's advice here. I thought about some of you guys by name this week. People who are younger than even me. And the example that you are in being students of the word, in evangelizing, in standing up for your faith, any number of things. And I thought, wow, some of you are already examples. Our culture and your peers are telling you that there are very low expectations for people your age. Do whatever you want. There are no consequences. Be immature, make foolish decisions now and worry about it when you're an adult. Paul's advice to you is right now, start being an example. Some of you guys have been an example to me. Pursue godliness. Let us have a conversation with you and think, wow, their speech was unbelievable. They never scoffed at me or someone else. They didn't use innuendos when they were talking to me. They didn't put other people down. They were gracious and kind. We should talk to you and look at your life and think, wow, your conduct is blameless. I see you make decisions, even when you think no one is watching, that just please the Lord. We should be able to look at young people and think, wow, your love for other people is unbelievable. I'm challenged as I see you love other people. Because I don't love people like that. 
Sometimes we think that young people don't have a place at a church. Paul says, Timothy, you do. And there's a broader encouragement. All young people can start now pursuing godliness, being an example in these things, challenging us to become more like Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 5 kind of details some of the logistical um, components of this church here in Ephesus. There's a lot of discussion about widows. I don't think we're going to answer any of these. We're almost out of time here, but I'll just kind of do my best to summarize Paul's teaching on widows in the church in Ephesus. Uh, He has a really interesting distinction that he makes between widows in general and those who are truly widows. These women who are truly widows would be eligible for some sort of financial support or aid from the church. Paul says, but in order to meet these requirements, you must first not have any other family that is taking care of you. And you must also prove by your life that you are a godly woman. This is why Paul says you must be above reproach. You meet these requirements, the church will support you, give you aid. One of the interesting things for widows who do have family is that it's actually described of that family that they have an opportunity to show godliness by taking care of the widows in their family. I think sometimes we think of godliness as being kind of a nebulous or a vague term. If you were to ask someone, hey, how do I be godly? You might be left scratching your head a little bit at times thinking, "Mm, let me think about that. It is not unclear to Paul here what the godly choice would be. Take care of your family. It is the responsibility of family first to take care of the widows. And then that responsibility falls to the church. And you say, what is all this teaching about widows doing for us? Well, a couple of things. One, I think it just shows us how a church is a community. Especially in ancient times, widows were, they they were the people that would have had the least opportunity to provide for themselves. They would have been just kind of left on their own and worst case scenario, I don't know what would happen to them. Maybe die of starvation, I don't know. But here the Bible is making provision for widows and we're just told, hey, the church is a community. We're a family. We take care of people who are on the outside. Second of all, we're reminded that God cares for widows. That in writing this chapter, we see the heart of God. Uh, I was reminded of, I think it's Psalm, it's gonna take me a second to find, uh, Psalm 68. God says this, he is described as father of the fatherless, protector of widows. In Deuteronomy 10, we're told that God executes justice for the fathers, fatherless and the widows. God is one who cares for these group of people. We should too. Let's pray. Lord, we have considered a lot this morning uh, of Timothy and his life this letter that was written to him, the expectations for him as a young person, as a minister of the gospel. And Lord, I pray, maybe if we learn nothing else, that we would all take seriously the responsibility that we have to be supporting the truth by the actions of our lives. That this wouldn't just be the job of the maybe professional Christians or those in leadership positions, but that we would all take this charge personally and remember that even louder than our voices, our life gives testimony to what Jesus has done in our hearts. Help us to be salt and light in the world this week. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.